0: She, her, and hers. On today, I am really excited to be bringing you a conversation with the author of what has been one of my best reads of the year. The book is Emotional Labor. It has been out just a few weeks now since March 28th. And it's one of those books I was actually taking photos of the pages and sending it to friends who were writing back instantly after just seeing a snippet saying, I just ordered it. Today's guest is Rose Hackman. Rose Hackman is a British journalist who is based currently in Detroit. For the last decade, her work on gender, race, labor, policing, housing, and the environment, published in The Guardian, has brought international attention to the overlooked American policy issues historically entrenched injustices, and complicated social mores. In 2015, while working as a features writer for The Guardian in New York City, Rose wrote a widely circulated article on emotional labor, which radically changed her way of understanding how power, gender, and race affect the most intimate ways in which people relate to one another. Her research on emotional labor in the past eight years since as an invisible, devalued, feminized, and yet essential form of work, has sought to drastically reframe our view on women, work, and the nature of persistent inequality. You're going to hear all about Rose's first book, Emotional Labor, in this episode. Again, this is, I think, one of those books that needs to be on our professional and personal development shelves. Welcome to the show, Rose Hackman your book emotional labor the invisible work shaping our lives and how to claim our power is officially available for purchase right now it's out there uh it's been great to see folks discussing it on social media already and i'm really excited to be speaking with you because listeners of this show who are educators in the k-12 to space are really passionate, of course, about making their schools more inclusive. And I think that they're going to be super engaged with your research, specifically what you share about um, you know, the reality that empathy can be learned, I think needs to be a focus of our learning, and just how malleable the mind is when it comes to stereotypes. I believe I've seen the book, uh, the research took you seven years. I've also seen eight years. I'm not sure which is correct, but I'm wondering if you might talk to us about how across that period of time, you felt like you may have been finding different audiences to whom this book, this book was going to connect with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the book, well, th- I started researching emotional labor in 2015. So um I suppose my research took me eight years, if you think that we're now in 2023. Um, I started the book officially a couple of years after I'd written an initial article for The Guardian. And basically I was working as a features writer at The Guardian based out of New York and really generally focusing on inequality. And my editor at the time, a woman called Jessica Reed, actually assigned me this topic of emotional labor as the next feminist frontier. And I'm not going to lie that at the time when she assigned it to me, I wasn't I wasn't really that interested in it, which is hilarious because I spent almost a decade on this now. Um, but at the time, basically, I thought it sounded a bit like a privileged of, you know, straight, privileged white women complaining that their husbands, I don't know, weren't picking up their socks. Um, and I started delving into the topic and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, This is a concern for privileged women, but it's also a concern for all sorts of other people too, Um, not just women, you know, people across the board. Um, And so that initial, that initial flip in my way of thinking about it was what got me really interested in the topic generally. And after that, it became, it was a bit of a snowball effect. So it went from being, to me, an issue of gender inequality that we were expecting effectively women and people in feminized roles to be disproportionately carrying the burden of emotional labor for everyone else, whether in families, in workplaces or anywhere in between. So it started off as that. But then what started happening over the years, once I got my book deal, and to me, what the most exciting bit of it is, is very clearly, very quickly, it became just so obvious to me that emotional labor is valuable so it's not about saying I don't want to do this anymore it's about being seen as you do it being valued as you do it and the actual work of what I call empathy in action actually finally being rewarded and we don't currently live in a society where empathy in action is rewarded in fact we live in a society where empathy in action is seen as a symbol of being part of a subservient group And that's kind of part of why, for example, boys and men are not encouraged to lean in to their emotionality, their emotional literacy. And that is where, as you mentioned, it's very exciting to me that the neuroscience and studies across psychology now show very clearly that, yes, girls and women, people socialized to be in those roles are expected to be more other oriented But that is not a fixed trait because as humans, we are all relational. We all need emotions and connection to one another in order to survive. That is actually how we perceive the world through our five senses primarily. And so the wonderful thing is really is that it's not just, oh, this is a terrible form of work that that these downtrodden groups of people are doing and we need to stop doing it. It's more, no, this is an incredibly powerful form of work. So can we please get other people to do it? It's not just going to help share the load. It's actually going to transform people who maybe are very alienated within themselves or within their lives and transform them into, you know, being much healthier, nicer human beings. I mean, it's amazing to me that
0: actually the book is not super long it's not super dense and you go into great detail to explain the neuroscience to explain different anecdotes to look at again what emotional labor looks like um, from an intersectional lens there's so much that you go into and you know as you just mentioned you this is not a book that i think sometimes folks hear there's going to be a conversation about emotional labor and they think this is just a conversation for women, this is just a book for women. Um, And very much that is not the instance. um, And, you know, I would question that it ever it ever was. But you very explicitly point out, especially with your chapter that's entitled What About the Men, Um, that this is an issue that everyone needs to be thinking about more critically. And I wanted to quote a passage from that chapter um, to you. So bear with me, like hearing your words in in my voice for a moment. Um, You write. Why is it so hard for men to feel like they can decide for themselves what their identity looks like? Why is it that we deny them vulnerability? The truth is that challenging masculinity norms and getting men to define themselves on their own terms is even more threatening to the system than women gaining their rights and challenging norms around femininity in society. Can you say more about what you refer to in that chapter as the absence of a gender revolution for men and why we need to talk more about it? Yeah.
1: So um, exactly as you said, over the last really 70 years, let's say, girls and women have suddenly been afforded chances and opportunities that their mothers, grandmothers were definitely not even, you know, my mother didn't get to go to college. I am the first generation in my family of women going to university. That is a huge amount of progress. The fact that I got to think of even having a career, not just being either, it's not even, she wasn't a homemaker. She always worked, but in a supportive kind of role, adapting her schedule to whatever it was that was going to help run the family. So the fact that I, at 36, get to build my own career is a huge, huge advancement. The fact that I get to Have a voice that in theory people should listen to is very new. That is a gender revolution that happened for so many of us, girls and women. And that is not a gender revolution that happened for men. They have not, over the last 70 years, suddenly been introduced to a huge variety of new opportunities, of new forms of work, of new ways of stepping into their power. They haven't really had a big cultural shift at all. And so there is a huge disconnect that's happening. And I think it's happening with young people, but also honestly with between adults, because I think women are being taught that whether it's in romantic relationships, out in the world, on the street, they should be treated with great dignity. They should not be having to put up with whether it's harassment or um, belittling. Um, They should not have to constantly have to, you know work for everyone else, which is actually what the part of the point of emotional labour is, we're still having to do it, but we're complaining about it. Men, absolutely not. So I think there is this disconnect. And so then you ask, well, what's going on with men? And my argument is very clearly that there is a part of patriarchy that requires of men, that basically promises to men that they will access a degree of power if they act extraordinarily dominating and aggressive. That's kind of the price of winning in a patriarchy. On the flip side, at the moment, especially in more progressive, um, diverse environments, boys and men are being told that that's not really what is wanted of them anymore, but we haven't handed them a new script. And I argue that emotional labor, the empathy and love in action, the emotional literacy from a really young age is key to them stepping into their new form of power, but we can only entice them into doing this form of work, into becoming more emotional creatures that they are anyway, because again, we are all emotional. This is not something that's gonna be new for them. It's just that we're gonna give them a language. So we need to do that. But the only way in which we can do that is starting to value emotional labor and emotional literacy and empathy and action full stop. Otherwise it's not enticing. You know, otherwise we can't, you can't convince someone, you can't say, you know, I went and I swam 20 kilometers and it was exhausting and I hated it, but you should do, you should do that with me tomorrow. That's not going to be enticing. You've got to say, you know, I went to the beach and it was extraordinary. And this is, I, don't, I didn't just, I wasn't just good to other people. I wasn't just loved myself, but I loved myself and I feel really good physically and mentally and emotionally. And that is what emotional labor does. Being good and showing up for other people and being caring actually doesn't just help others, it helps you.
0: You know, it's it's really interesting. And, and as you're reframing it that way, it reminds me of another book that I've read recently and, and I've talked about a lot on, on the show. It's from Dr. Jane Ward. It's her book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. And she kind of reframes the dialogue around um, you know heterosexual couples care and be interested in queer relationships not just because it's like a moral imperative or like the right thing to do um but also there's some learning for you there and it's interesting because you know sometimes folks will because of and you talk about stereotypes in the media and how they also can really you know create this false narrative and sometimes you know folks will talk to me about what it means for me to be a woman married to a woman and like you know, every movie I've seen, it's like terrible. And um, and if they're kind of really interested in a true dialogue, I'll talk about the reality that I love being a woman married to a woman. Of course, we have some obstacles, but as your book also gets into, we don't have these forced roles where certain chores are going to fall under your purview. Other things are going to fall under mine. I will take on all the responsibility for communicating with family, That doesn't happen. We navigate that. And because in in many ways, there's not this model, we have a lot of freedom in making choices. Um, And so I wonder, you know, with what you're saying and really switching this model to there's something to be gained for you here. I'm wondering what role you think really like TV and film can play in that too, because as you were talking about, um, you know, sort of like the only way to win in patriarchy, I think about myself growing up in the eighties and the kinds of shows that were popular, the kinds of films that were popular, um, it wasn't typical to see the portrayal of a man having like deep friendship with another man, um, you know, in a way that I think sometimes we have that narrative for women. And I I think about my own male friends and my brothers and how I don't know that they grew up uh, learning to prioritize
1: something as simple as friendship. right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the narratives need to desperately shift across the board. Um, And I do think that media and film play a huge role. You know, I grew up, so I grew up in Belgium. I'm British, but I grew up in Belgium. And we used to go to the cinema, the movie theater quite a lot. And my mum would take us to see romantic comedies. And, you know, I was always a feminist, but I'm, you know, like many other people, I'm not alone. You know, I'm a feminist who likes romantic comedies. As a result of having been exposed to them, I rewatch some of those romantic comedies, and I mean, including 21st century ones. You know, in the early 2000s, they've they've stopped making as many big box office ones, and they are so gender regressive. They are so they're so often. There's one with Ashley Judd where women are compared to constantly compared to animals. You know, desperate to commit, desperate for the man. You know that the big bull to finally with his hormones decide that he will be trapped in the pen. I mean, it is so backwards, it's wrong. And that is exactly how we end up being where we are right now, which is for the book, I had all of these conversations. And I think a lot of the women that I spoke to instinctively got it, especially once you started, you know, they they kind of connected to it, to a story and then it would, you know, the, the floodgates would open. But I would have a lot of conversations, some with women and a lot with men, where they just had very essentialist views of emotions. You know, we, we still think in this very gender binary way that men are rational and women are emotional. And honestly, the, the fact that women are cast as the original sex, the, the emotional sex, ends up being a way to actually insult us because emotions are kind of seen as, you know flighty when in fact if you look at studies and popular examples across society so very clearly you know the fact that we have been trained and incentivized socially to be very good at emotional labor which really is you know tapping into your emotions and putting them to work for other people means that we're able to actually regulate modulate manipulate our emotions to adapt to a situation pretty well and actually the emotional the flighty ones are those who haven't been socialized to do emotional labor well the emotional ones very often the people who lose their tempers in public spheres and actually in families are overwhelmingly going to be the men more i mean i i'm i sometimes experience anger and i and i know you know i've been i've been taught to deal with it i was taught from a very young age that i was not allowed to be angry this was not an acceptable feeling and I mean to go back to the rational versus emotional, because I feel like I planted it there and I have to end the thought because otherwise, you know, I'm sure it's going to be very obvious to anyone listening. But to cast one group of people as only just rational, and then to cast an, a different group of people, not just as emotional, but therefore insinuating they're not particularly rational, it just doesn't make any sense. We know that's not true. We just know it. So, yes, we desperately need to, to change the cultural scripts. And, you know, as we change the cultural scripts, honestly, we also have to, in the real world, you know, represent- representation is not enough. We also need to, you know, these kinds of jobs that are so key to our economy that are not going to be disappearing because emotional labor cannot be replaced fundamentally. The connection between two people, you can try and automate it, but it's not going to be the same. We've got to pay people in our formal economy who do emotional labor and recognize the work that they're doing as the essential work that it is. and that obviously includes for example educators
0: yeah and you know i almost wonder i have been sort of referring to this moment that we're into as like the year of artificial intelligence and i i kind of think about the role that emotional labor is going to play in jobs and how because of what ai can do i think it's going to be that emotional piece that becomes i hope even more treasured, even more valued. Um, we shall see, but that's that's my hope. And your book also really does leave readers with a great deal of hope. And I also, again, I just, I appreciate how expansive your perspective on emotional labor is. And I I want to quote your book one more time. Uh, and, and Rose, I should say there's like the, I might as well have just highlighted the entire book. By the time I was finished reading, it was just like, why did I highlight one thing? I almost have highlighted everything here. But I, I love that you, you frame our thinking around emotional labor uh, to be thinking about how it plays a role in our communities and how for communities who are very passionate about leaning towards justice, this is really important. So this quote here was one I actually even took a photo and I sent it to a few friends and I was like, you've just you've got to get this book. So here's the quote. The free speech debate is a false one really pure free speech doesn't exist in a world where some forms of speech act to silence marginalize, and therefore impede the free speech of others. Such debates are really about clasping onto a power hierarchy, we are used to versus loosening up its seams End quote. This book looks at how systems of oppression work together. And I'm aware of your your background. you you mentioned again, you you've been associated with The Guardian for quite a while, and I'm wondering to what extent that work, um doing the work of a journalist, maybe helped prepare you to tell what is a very
1: comprehensive and complex story of emotional labor. Well, that's very kind. Um, yes, you know, as a journalist, as an active journalist i've been I feel like I've been a bit of an inactive journalist focusing on this book. Um I was really interested in the roots of inequality and that's really what I like to to tell as a story and actually for the first few years that I was in the US that was actually talking about things like housing and race and and the perpetuation of segregation that's why I ended up in Detroit and you know these issues are so interesting to me because they permeate your everyday life you know where you live what your neighborhood looks like who you live next to Um, your attitudes towards different people, your opportunities in life. That's everything. But it's it's very hard sometimes to get to the root of why your life is like this. Um, And so I've always been really passionate about really integrating academic research and history and context to try to tell a story so that you can't just, you don't just, you're not just pointing to an injustice, one injustice of one family or one person, you're pointing to an injustice that is an intimate expression of a much, much larger problem. And that is, you know, that is so much what ended up happening with emotional labor. And that goes back to, you know, me at the beginning of this project being a little dismissive of emotional labor. And actually I think I was being a bit sexist. You know, I am a feminist, I've identified as a feminist, but you know, for as long as I understood what the term meant, you know, starting as a child, but the truth is, the way in which we silence issues around gender is by casting them as silly, especially when women are involved. I mean, now that the way in which people are silencing any proper debate about gender is by making about transphobia. And that is such such a distracting mechanism. No one cares about women's athletics on the right. I'm sorry, this is my opinion. And that's just set to try and create a loop of hate that is gonna stop us from showing up for trans women as well as women, full stop. So yes, that is my brand of journalism is to, my sister once told me um, when I started off as a journalist, I have an older sister who's based in Paris, who's a real incredible um, journalist. And she said to me, the secret with journalism was you can never over report a story. And I found over the years, it. That is not the secret to journalism. That's a terrible piece of advice because I always overreport the story. And really, that's why we're here eight years on and, and with this book. But I am also thrilled. You know, I think emotional labor genuinely is one of the most pressing issues of our time. I think if we don't reckon with it, we're not going to seize on an, an opportunity to, to really change the way in which we're perceiving value. Value should not be, in my very informed opinion domination and aggression, value should be community and care and love in action that doesn't just make winners out of those doing it, it makes winners out of the broader community. And it's also the secret, as I say in my book, towards the end, in a number of different ways, quoting a lot of different studies, It's the secret to longevity. Very clearly, people who are in emotionally connected relationships who are not just having the work done for them but they're doing the work back live longer they live longer lives in this country over the last few years years before the pandemic started the average age of death has been falling and that is mainly due to deaths of desperation which includes suicide alcoholism and overdoses drug overdoses and those are disproportionately concentrated among men and actually specifically white men. So if you can't come on board to this mission because you really want to love women and girls and marginalized communities who've been doing this work all along and you care about the plight of men and white men, I'm gonna tell you that I also do. And if you care about them truly, you need to get them to open up about their emotions. You need to get them to develop emotional literacy. You need to get them to constantly perform empathy and action and they will be rewarded for it. As those thoughts also, of course, are
0: in the book, it it felt strange for me to be telling friends this book, Emotional Labor, is inspiring and hopeful, of course, enraging, you know, as you're going through the anecdotes. But there's something so unique in the way a reader comes through this book understanding here is a completely different way we can nudge one another to see this issue in that let's circle around it together. Let's not necessarily see it as an issue just for some and not for all, but really to see how it's interwoven into so many different issues. Um, And again, your point about valuing community, not just because don't we have kind of like a moral obligation or it makes us feel like a quote unquote good person, but because it actually makes a real world health difference for us. Um, Again, I just, I can't get over how much you have crammed into a smallish book. Um, Listeners, I have no doubt once you pick it up, it is very, very difficult to put down. And I think it makes for a wonderful book club. So again, folks, if you're looking for a community read this book, um, it's one that I'm going to be recommending so much. I look forward to continuing to see responses to it online, Rose, thank you so much for for giving up some of your time and, and sharing with listeners today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your conversation.
0: To learn all about the book, Emotional Labor, as well as this week's guest, please remember to head over to the show notes independent media, podcasts like the one you're listening to right now rely so heavily on ratings and reviews. If you have a quick 30 seconds and you can leave a review or leave a rating, I'd appreciate it. See you next Thursday.